When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Dahlia Al-Masri, Palestinian writer and researcher based in Vancouver, but joining us from Amman, Jordan. Welcome to Shortcuts. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Today on the show, a journey from tragedy to farce. Uh, First, we'll talk about media coverage of Israel-Palestine, and then we will talk about award season in the Canadian media. It's good to have you on the show. Excited to be here and very excited to talk about this coverage. This episode is brought to everybody by Neil Chambers, Lisa Sheldrick, William Nippard, Sasha Ostegi, Vash Abadi Cook, Colin Saraka, Eric Tokay, and Tirat. Hi, I'm Tirat, an ultimate frisbee and music festival loving environmental engineer in Cambridge, Ontario. And I love Canada Land because of the variety of voices, their ability to educate, but also make me laugh, and Jesse's mostly correct opinions. Gaza burned and billowed as Israeli airstrikes hit cars, factories, and homes in the Palestinian territory. 
Clashes between Palestinian and Israeli forces are intensifying this hour. Gaza's Hamas militants have fired more than 130 rockets toward Tel Aviv. The conflict between Israelis and Palestinians escalated today. In the biggest exchange of fire between the two sides in seven years. Some have likened that to ethnic cleansing. Israel calls it a private real estate dispute. What do you make of these very different characterizations of what's going on? Dahlia, our, our job today is is to do like media criticism about specific pieces of coverage of what's happening in East Jerusalem, what's happening in Gaza, what's happening in Tel Aviv. Before we do that, I, I think it's necessary to just acknowledge the obvious. This exercise we're going to do, talking about articles and headlines, talking about words and pictures – I think it can be a bit callous when what is really happening right now is about is about people, is about human lives that are uh, being endangered and lost. Do you have family in Palestine who are in danger right now? So like many Palestinians, like myself, um, a lot of our family members who left after Israel was created in 1948 um, do not have permits and they don't have documents. So that means uh, they're refugees and they're not allowed to return. So many of my family members um, were displaced to countries such as Syria, Jordan and the Gulf. So I currently do not have family members there because of the uh, legality of it. But I do have many friends and many family friends who are currently living in the West Bank, specifically in Nablus, Ramallah. And I have some friends in Gaza who are providing um, some firsthand accounts and just in WhatsApp conversations to me on what's happening. I, I hope that your, your friends uh, are safe. I have uh, family members in Tel Aviv right now. And we, uh, we learned yesterday, last we heard, they're in a, they're in a, uh, a bomb shelter hoping that they're safe as well. Mm-hmm. I think that to, to again state something obvious, I don't think it's controversial to denounce the violence, to denounce the hatred that I'm seeing um, from these like eyewitness uh, artifacts of what's, of what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. I want to just start off by saying that I think that it would be a lie to present this as an equivalency. Uh, we are talking about a wildly disproportionate conflict According to the Associated Press, as of recording time, I'm sure the numbers are greater than this and they'll be even greater when people hear this. By the, by the time people hear this, 35 Palestinians uh, have been killed, five Israelis, and reports of uh, civilian casualties, women and children on both sides. But that is not an, that's not a, uh, uh, an equivalent or symmetrical conflict. There's sort of an absurd suggestion that there's an equivalency. Mm-hmm. We've been flooded with requests from listeners asking us to take a close look at two things. One is the absence of coverage. Andrew Mitrovica, who's been on the show before in Al Jazeera, writing about uh, like a blackout of coverage predating what's happening right now. And uh, the other thing people are saying is you need to do a close analysis of the framing and the language that the media in Canada uses when they do cover this. Dahlia, I know that you uh, have done an analysis of that language. Mm-hmm. What do you see playing out in terms of the semantics of how this gets framed? So to, to provide a little bit of context, historically, at least for decades, especially in both American and Canadian media, numerous times the coverage on Israel and on Palestine is often framed uh, using a lot of the same words. And by no means is this, you know, heavy, heavy coverage, scuffle, clashes, escalations, tensions, framing the problem as if it's it's some kind of minor conflict or a minor argument, you know, between two people. 
And in the recent coverage, specifically, the words that are really being used are clashes and evictions and real estate dispute. With this hazy term clashes, uh, we have the Associated Press again in the CBC. More than 200 Palestinians hurt in night of clashes. There's a night of clashes in Jerusalem, medics say. Toronto Star, what's behind the clashes in Jerusalem. Language is very important and the words that journalists are writing and the words that they're using in videos are oftentimes translated into policies that governments use, are translated into reports that human rights organizations use. And so the coverage lately has been mostly these mischaracterizations and oftentimes through the analysis that I have seen, is that these mischaracterizations are very strategic. You know, they're essentially, essentially they do minimize what's happening and they, they, to an extent, they do dehumanize the violence that is being perpetuated in this specific instance of Jerusalem. So I'm talking specifically about the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of Jerusalem, where the Palestinian families there are fighting a court case against Israeli settlers and against an American-backed organization that wants to kick these families out to make way for the Israeli settlers. Now, if we want to get into why this language is being used, in the media landscape at least, there's some kind of a status quo and a fear that is attached to reporting on Palestine. And this fear extends from a lot of lobbying against journalists and against media corporations It also extends because of, you know, oftentimes we don't know who's donating to these media corporations. Can I just interrupt? uh, Because that's that's sort of a a specific uh, aspect that I I hadn't heard anyone suggest before. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of any like actual financial donations to media or to mainstream Canadian media organizations that you feel might be slanting the coverage? So there's an organization called CJA, which is the Center of Israel and Jewish Affairs in Canada. What I have seen, at least, and I think another organization called B'nai Birth, so both of them are labeled as uh, Israeli lobby or Israeli advocacy organizations, um, I believe. And a lot of their work, which is supposed to be, you know, advocating for for Jewish identity, essentially goes really into advocating for anti-Palestinian bias in the media, let's say. And so what, I, what I've seen there, at least I've, I've, I've seen one specific uh, instance where uh, Sija and let's say other organizations have lobbied towards outlets like the Toronto Star and some of the journalists at the Toronto Star who also have their own interests have essentially only allowed people such as the Israeli ambassador to Canada to write an opinion piece. And so uh, at least for me, in my opinion and this analysis, I do think that Private donations do change the way that the landscape is being presented. Wait, but what what what, what private donations? What, like to the Toronto Star? Or? So I, I don't have like specific instances, like names, but in, uh, let's say like for American media, I don't know if it's okay to connect American and Canadian media here. Over the years, when Reuters started to advance, obviously we see a lot of coverage from Reuters um, using words such as clashes or just titles like Palestinian stone, Israeli car, car crashes, amid-Jerusalem escalations. So at least for this specific instance, this is just kind of what I see in the way that the language is being used and the way that certain journalists or certain media organizations cover these instances in Canada is because of the fear. And potentially, we don't even know this maybe, but because of 
some kind of behind-the-scenes donations. Respectfully, if there was direct financial contributions to Canadian news organizations to to influence this bias, we would be very interested to know about it. I'm Mm -hmm. not aware of any anything like that at the Toronto Star Mm -hmm. or elsewhere, and that would be you know wildly outside of what's considered proper journalistic practice. I think that uh, it's absolutely true that the B'nai B'rith and um, Sija and Honest Reporting, there are organized lobby groups mm-hmm. which which scour Canadian media for evidence of anti-Israel bias, and they put a lot of pressure on newsrooms. I've mm-hmm. seen that firsthand. That's not the same thing as buying off a newspaper. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, and, and there are, there's the National, the National Association of Canadian Muslims. When they feel that there's uh, anti-Islamic b- uh, bias in the Canadian press, they, they also push those newsrooms. Let me give an example here. I've spoken to many Palestinians in Canada who are academics, professors, you know, at different universities, University of Calgary, the University of British Columbia, um, someone who is the a friend at the Canadian Arab Institute, the executive director. You know, they've tried to write different opinion pieces for the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, CBC News, and oftentimes... Editors either, you know, provided no response or they kind of gave them a very wishy-washy answer saying it's not local enough or it's not really interest of Canadians or, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe just we don't have the time. We don't have kind of the space for this right now. Or again, you know, just no answers. Right. And so this is just kind of part of that larger problem in how the media ignores the Palestinian voice. And so a lot of the perception is skewed. We return to the word. And right. when we read words like rockets kill two mm. Israelis, 26 die in Gaza, mm-hmm. there are really valid questions to ask about, well, that's much stronger language. Like Israelis get killed, but Gazans just happen to die. Exactly. What is this distinction? And that gets changed to 35 Palestinians killed in Gaza. So now Palestinians are getting killed in Gaza as Israel hits Hamas with airstrikes. Rockets kill three in Israel. You still have strange language. Like, is it the rockets that killed three? It's this endless quandary and puzzle. And you could feel as the headlines get written and complained about and then rewritten that, uh, you know, the, the copywriters and editors are just sort of scrambling to try to not offend people as they package and repackage other people's reporting. Why this is, is a separate question. Mm-hmm. That it is, we can document that right. it is like there's a there's a strangeness a passivity a desire to kind of cr- just sort of like present the story as i don't know about the desire but the the mm-hmm. effect is presenting the story is like well there's just violence breaking out it's just you know bullets are killing people mills, m- missiles are killing people people are just sort of passively dying and there seems to be a reluctance to write in a way that tells you who did what i think that you came a lot closer to it when you talked about the fear of writing about Israel-Palestine. One thing I can tell you is, first of all, we don't have Canadian correspondents in Israel anymore. Like, I don't know if there's like three left full-time. All that's left is the framing. We get wire stories from the Associated Press and all that's left is what headline are we going to put on it. Mm -hmm. And from a journalist in the newsroom's perspective, and this, this ongoing debate is like, are they in the tank for one side or the other? Are they somehow influenced by one side or the other? I would suggest that there is a much greater concern that is skewing the coverage than necessarily that they're more sympathetic to one side or the other, and that is that they're sympathetic to themselves. Whatever you write, there's going to be dozens or hundreds of letters sent to your boss. It absolutely does come from pro-Israel groups. 
it also comes from people who are supporters of the Palestinian struggle, and every word gets really closely analyzed. And so you, I do think that, that, that the bias is towards like this wishy-washy neutrality of trying to not say anything because covering Israel-Palestine is like all stick, no carrot. Like no one's like, great story, Canadian journalist on Israel-Palestine. You did a wonderful job with that. Like all you can really do is mess up like or lose. And that's the, I think that's an underexplored facet of, of why the coverage is the way that it is. Well, you know, respectfully, I am going to push back a little bit. What I see is a lot of the editorial standards or editorial practices that they have, especially social media policies for journalists, you know, that basically doesn't allow them to, to state their opinion or to be objective and neutral. And the way that I see journalism is journalists have that obligation and the duty to morally and ethically represent the truth and to represent the communities they cover. And so the thing that's missing here is because of this fear, and this fear, there is a rightful fear, but honestly, most of this fear is driven by kind of the silence as well. When we stay silent and when journalists and newsrooms don't really cover these issues to an extent, it starts to get ignored in Canada and it starts to get really pushed under that rug, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you have a journalist who maybe writes a piece, you know, they bring a Palestinian writer to write something and it gets a lot of shares and likes and comments, that kind of tells you that readers want to know more, you know? They want to actually hear from, um, to hear reporting on Palestine. It's just the way that this anti-Palestinian bias gets pushed And again, here, I'm pushing back at you because I think this is such an important conversation we're having on that specific part, this fear that really drives newsrooms to push it under the rug. In the end, it is news, you know, if we want to think about it from from that perspective, right? It is news. It's uh, it's Middle East news. It's foreign news. Readers in Canada have that right to kind of to read about it. And there are tons of Palestinians who are so qualified in Canada, who are so great, you know. The landscape is somewhat changing, especially in Canada. I've noticed more and more people speaking out on Twitter, more and more people writing some kind of articles. And even if these different outlets, like, you know, the mainstream media outlets like Toronto Star and CBC and Globe kind of rely on on wires, there is kind of a tide. But but the reason that this this shift in, in tide is happening is because we're having conversations like this. I'm not sure that we disagree. If, if your point is that this is getting undercovered and ignored and swept under the rug because of fear, yeah, I agree with you. And if you're arguing that people want and need this information and, the, and that we need accurate information, mm-hmm. I agree with that too. And again, to bring up Andrew Mitrovica writing in Al Jazeera, he singled out um, Canadian media, Canada's blackout of Israel's yeah. crimes against humanity. Why didn't the Canadian media cover um, Human Rights Watch in their report that called Israel an apartheid state. Derek Stoffel, who used to be the Middle East correspondent, Mm -hmm. he said, well, we just don't have the resources. A lack of resources is itself an editorial choice. Mm -hmm. But my analysis of this is uh, that's always going to be a good excuse to, to you don't have to actually deal with whether or not it was newsworthy or not. Mm-hmm. And then furthermore, we learned from within the CBC that the way they're responding to what's happening right now, Derek and one colleague are basically forming this like internal team to vet every story that goes out of the CBC. Like it's it's so dangerous for them. They're so afraid of printing the wrong thing. Or, and, and we should be cautious to get things right. But I think mm-hmm. that it's it's obvious that they are very, very alert to the different interests that they're going to get pressure from, and yet they don't have a permanent team. I, I don't know if he was replaced, but I do know that uh, according to this internal communication, uh, CBC was sending a team 
to Israel that should be arriving as people are getting this podcast on Thursday. So as this major world event is playing out, it doesn't seem like the CBC had, had boots on the ground to cover it. As a journalist, I feel like, no, we have a responsibility to tell people what's going on. We have to be brave enough to, to, to try to do so accurately, you know, damn the consequences, you know. But, but, but I, I do have kind of like a larger, uh, I guess, a sense of despair and futility around like the media conflict. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because it's been playing out for years and years. Maybe we could kind of end by just discussing that a little bit. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like we have these two groups – we have Jewish organizations in Canada who are are very, very vocal and sometimes kind of aggressive in going through everything that gets published. And there are groups dedicated to this. Mm. I, I know people who work for these groups and I've received emails uh, for my own journalism from people in these groups. There are a lot of people who feel like they're taking a stand against anti-Semitism. And, and the sort of the, the, the support of the state of Israel is sort of a secondary concern. It's sort of like no matter who's in power, no matter what Israel is doing, they're very attuned – to the possibility that anti-Semitism is getting cloaked as Mm anti-Zionism. And when they see a university making a hire of somebody who they feel is on the wrong side of things, or if they see a newsroom that's presenting things in a way that they feel is is anti-Israeli, they will make their displeasure known. And I think that they are motivated by a genuine, like, belief that there is anti-Semitism that is cloaked as anti-Zionism. And there is a historical precedent for people cloaking anti-Semitism in other uh, more acceptable causes. And I think that they, they feel like personally affronted when they see language like Israel's an apartheid state or, uh, you know, crimes against humanity from Israel. Like this is an attempt to call all Jews racist and they have to push back. And then on the other side, there are people who are uh, supporters of the Palestinian struggle who I think comb through the media looking for evidence of anti-Palestinian bias and find plenty of it academics, uh, less institutional support, but some academics, individuals, researchers like yourself. But then, you know, uh, Al Jazeera covers this, Rabble covers this, Passage covers this, others cover this. What is the campaign that you're involved in to try to actually push back against the anti-Palestinian bias? I think it's, tell me if I have you right, if we can accurately call it what it is, and, and and the condemnations and the denunciations that are, are merited follow and that there's some sort of a consensus around crimes, that that will actually improve things, that that will shame or isolate Israel into, I don't know, progressing the, 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 this to some less bloody place than it is now. And I just feel like both sides are hopelessly idealistic. Like I, I don't – I don't know that either side is going to accomplish those goals. Do you know what I mean? So the claim that, you know, that these groups who kind of comb through the media um, to say that they have a genuine fear for anti-Semitic tropes is, in my opinion, it's very dangerous to to equate criticisms of Israel with anti-Semitism. And so these groups know how to really conflate the two in order to get people to be incredibly scared to to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. When you have something that Palestinians have been saying for decades come out in reports in Human Rights Watch saying that Israel is an apartheid state, which is honestly the lesser aggressive language as opposed to saying settler colonialism, saying occupation, checkpoints. When you have kind of that report coming out, 
these groups tend to immediately jump on them and say that is anti-Semitic, but they don't necessarily describe how or why. And when we know that anti-Semitism is on the rise and it has to be combated, but it can't be equated with the Palestinian struggle or with Palestinians themselves. I know tons of Jewish organizations and and tons of Jewish folks who are doing real good work to actually combat anti-Semitism, to create definitions of anti-Semitism that do not include criticisms of Israel, who are really, you know, writing and researching and coming up with anti-racist strategies to really help organizations and government policies and journalists themselves to use kind of correct language Um, to show that the Jewish community is not a monolith. And even just equating Jewish people with the state of Israel is anti-Semitic on its own, right? So these these very messy little stages need to be explicitly called out and said for what they are. And as people with platforms, let's say, we have a right and an obligation to really call out groups and biases, especially in the media. Yeah, I think the impact is actually the opposite of what they're trying to do because I think that when uh, groups are so dedicated to uh, pressuring newsrooms to have stories changed or to have, uh, you know, uh, reporters apologize, you know, Duncan McHugh had to apologize for saying the word Palestine recently. The actual impact of that, even though it's done to kind of like remove supposed anti-Semitism from the media, the impact of it is that it, it, it actually like seems to contribute to the big lie. It actually seems to, uh, to, to provide evidence to this idea that Jews control the media or the Jewish money or influence are paying off newsrooms. I actually think it creates more racism against Jews. And it does do a disservice to a lot of the Jewish organizations and the people who have been, you know, working years to create an anti, anti-racist anti strategy that incorporates combating anti-Semitism. So that's why I constantly, I have no issue saying that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitic. And, you know, criticizing any government's human rights abuse is something that we all have the right to do and we should be doing, you know. It's the same for every other government in the world that has human rights violations. And a lot of the people tend to even focus on this kind of narrative saying, why are we criticizing Israel so much? Why aren't we criticizing China or Saudi Arabia or Russia? People kind of tend to use these different countries to deflect from Israel's criticisms. And honestly, I, I, what I see here now in the landscape and the shifting, especially just in the past couple of days on, on the reporting on Jerusalem and Gaza, is there is a shift and it's a positive shift. It's a shift that's starting to center Palestinians Mohammed Al-Kurd, one of the residents in Sheikh Jarrah, who's also a writer and a journalist, he has basically been on interviews for the past week. And in the Western mainstream media, we have never heard of Palestinians speak this much. We have never really heard or seen videos from them themselves saying, hey, here is an American-backed organization that wants to kick me out of my home. Or hey, like here is an Israeli settler saying to my face straight up, that if I don't take your house, someone else is going to. And just from a purely informational point of view as a journalist, we should hear from the people who this affects. Yeah. We, we need the best language, the best, uh, most accurate information, and we need to hear from the people directly affected. Mm-hmm. Even if that's not going to have a positive impact, we need to do that just for the record. Mm-hmm. But this idea that the power of journalism, I, I just want to share with you like uh, some reflection I have from knowing a, a bit about mm-hmm. this, not a lot. Yeah, There is this, um, I think, a campaign to even go beyond just accuracy in language. There's a campaign for, I think, rhetorical language to describe uh, Israeli violence as uh, akin to what the Nazis did, to describe it as pogroms, to describe it uh, as genocidal. 
and I think that there's this kind of um, a rhetorical uh, attempt to kind of like throw back uh, some of the narrative of of Jewish history, and to, and to you know, and to suggest, and you know, now you're you're in the oppressor role, and uh, towards I think. Uh, an international shaming and an isolation uh, that goes beyond just informational factual stuff. What I see happening is what you have in that country is a a majority of secular Israelis who have liberal politics in many places that are getting radicalized. I I don't know that you're going to reach a consensus in terms of the impact of media. Mm -hmm. Oh, now the headlines are all against us. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I've seen happen is that it actually has the opposite effect, is that there is there there is not a trust that the world actually cares about the safety and security of, of Israelis. See, I think this part here is not is not really fair because I don't think that to to really equate it as such an important part of you know the media war, most people try to shy away from that narrative because it is very counterproductive. I've had to grow up with stories from family and from friends you know, telling me how they were kicked out of their homes in 1948. And the language that essentially decades followed after that, the language started to shift. You know, people started to create uh, denial of what happened in 1948. You know, historical revisionism and essentially say that, no, Palestinians weren't kicked out in 1948 to create the state of Israel. This is this in itself is a fact. We, we know this. There are oral and historical archives Palestinians have documented this. Um, Israeli historians have documented this. And that's the most important part to note. After that, it's not productive to link what the Jewish people went through to Palestine. This in itself, I believe, is just kind of feeds into a racist trope and an anti-Semitic trope as well. We have to distinguish both oppressions. You know, we have to understand that both severities are real. Denial of Palestinian Nakba is very, very real. And denial of the Holocaust is also very, very real. And we cannot link those two together because that's where the media falls into a trap, you know? That's kind of where also that fear comes up, like, we don't want to report on this. We don't want to get into these little holes. We're seeing kind of these clips that we've never seen before, hearing these. And maybe these words are harsh. To me, they are words that I've heard my entire life. And these Words essentially are watered down. So when Human Rights Watch came out with the report that Israel is an apartheid state, it was confirmed what Palestinians had already known. And it had confirmed what a lot of Palestinian journalists and writers have been writing about for decades. I think that we really do need to remove that stigma in, in saying that if, we, if someone was to write about it or report about it, they're going to fall into an anti-Semitic trope or they're going to be comparing it or using dangerous words. I don't think that saying, you know, Palestinians are living under occupation is anti-Israel bias. Saying that, you know, there are checkpoints in place in the West Bank, saying that I can't go back to Palestine. I don't think all of these things mean that it's an anti-Israel bias. But we we definitely don't want to distract and move away and compare oppressions and and kind of use. I hate when people say you know com, are comparing it to Nazism or kind of using the Holocaust yeah, yeah. as their own agenda. That 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 like ruins everything. Obviously, you know it's so distracting. I think we can use some of the language of colonialism, but Israel does not exist because of manifest destiny. It exists because of the Holocaust. Like we got to deal with the facts yeah. here. Like the Palestinians live with a boot on their neck. That's not good. Yeah. It's, it's certainly not good for Palestinians. It's not good for Israelis. It's not mm-hmm. wrong or anti-Israel to, to, to say that truth, right? That's true. 
Mm-hmm. Thank you for talking with me about this. No, thank you for allowing me to talk about it. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Daya, we, we try to uh, duly note stuff on the show when there's a news story that kind of like gets under noticed and we think people should over notice it or at least notice it. Is there something that you'd like to duly note today? There is actually. It might be a little bit depressing, <laughs> but it does have to do in relation to, uh, again, what's happening in Palestine. The story that I wanted to highlight was... So yesterday, um, there was a report that a 30-year-old uh, journalist, a Palestinian journalist, she was killed in one of the Israeli strikes, um, and she was four months pregnant. And the thing that I wanted to note about this story is that this woman actually, kind of something positive to remember her by as well as something that I wanted to note, is her name was Rima. And because she, she, was, she was a journalist and an entrepreneur, and she was living in Gaza, which, of course, as people know, is under, you know, is besieged, is under blockade. Um, but she did a lot of really, a re- really good work throughout her 30 years of life. And, you know, she really pushed for Palestinians in Gaza to kind of get out there and tell their own stories. And she was actually able to really get through me- through to the media world, especially just living in an enclave, an enclave that's very isolated from the rest of the world. So I kind of wanted to to bring that story and, and shed some attention on it because I think uh, I wanted to remember her in a positive way and, and kind of her life. And also just, you know, tell people that all of these lives and casualties that we experience in in war and in trauma and death, we should try to at least remember the good that they gave and 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 be able to, you know, pinpoint part of those um, aspects of their lives that they really pushed forward to. Duly noted. 
I have something I'd like to duly note. The story about uh, filmmaker Michelle Latimer, um, we've been covering this in various ways. It's popped up back in the news as uh, Michelle Latimer has, has broken her silence, the Globe and Mail announces in the headline, all I can do is speak my truth, she says. And um, she grants this exclusive interview to Barry Hertz, who covers um, film and other things for the Globe and Mail. For now, what I want to duly note is just sort of like from a media perspective, this is an exclusive interview. Michelle Latimer's erroneous claims, uh, which she's taken some partial responsibility for, those were investigated by reporters at the CBC. And she did not go to them to break her silence. And she's asked why by Barry Hertz. And she says, well, they're, they're, they're not in good faith. And she doesn't really explain why. What we get here is Michelle Latimer, I think, very plainly trying to kind of reform and repair her image in a conversation with Barry Hertz uh, that is behind a paywall for the Globe and Mail subscribers. Who is not present in this conversation about whether Michelle Latimer is, in fact, indigenous? Uh, indigenous people are, are have been cut out of this conversation. And in fact, the Globe and Mail has an indigenous reporter, Willow Fiddler, who tweeted to say, boy, would I have liked to have done that interview. And I have to imagine that would have been a very different interview. And I wonder if Michelle Latimer would have done that interview. What I see, or at least think when I hear, I need to trust the person I'm talking to, or I need to feel comfortable to the journalist I'm talking to, I kind of see it as uh, evading some kind of accountability because she would obviously know that they're going to be prodding at her until she gives a real distinct answer. Duly noted. Dahlia, let's talk about something completely asinine, okay? Okay. Media awards, news awards. Awards are kind of like in the air, like the Golden Globes getting kind of like... Should I, I don't want to say canceled, except they've been literally canceled. Like they're not getting broadcast. Like we can we can apply cancel culture to the to the Golden Globes because they are they yeah. have, they've been canceled from broadcast, and uh, it's because um, it was acknowledged that these these awards have very little to do with merit, and that there's a lot of racism and uh, homogenousness uh, at the upper ranks, and the wrong things were getting awards, and. Uh, that's playing out while a, a kind of lesser Canadian version uh, I've noticed has been playing out here in, in, in the press because we have so many different awards in Canada for, for news and it's awards season, as we say. And a few things happened. One thing that happened is um, the National Newspaper Awards were held last week and a group called Justice and Journalism, which is the equity committee for Unifor – uh, representing journalists um, at the Star, Globe, Mail, and, and elsewhere, they noticed just how overwhelmingly white the nominees were, and they took the opportunity to tweet a bunch of other journalism that was deserving of recognition, and it was wonderful journalism. But there's sort of this counter-programming to the official awards. And then at the awards, the Toronto Star, a group of four guys at the Toronto Star, won an award for doing like data journalism on long-term care. And like a lot of people, I thought, huh, it's weird for them to be getting this award for doing all this data journalism on long-term care during COVID because that's what Nora Loretto did. She did it before them. She did it on a voluntary basis and she did it exceptionally well. I don't, I don't know if you've been following Nora's work through, through the pandemic. Yeah, I have. It seems just wrong for somebody else to be getting an award for that. And she spoke up and 
I mean, she acknowledged in her thread about it, Nora did, like, uh, you know, I, 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 Nora's really mm-hmm. honest. You know, she's just like, yeah, I, like, it sucks that there's no recognition for what I did here. But she acknowledged, like, it's not like they won over me. Like, I can't even apply for a national newspaper award. I'm not a newspaper. Like, the whole thing is set up in a way that excludes. And, you know, she was clear to say there's no, like, specific accusation that they plagiarized her. In fact, they might have plagiarized her. It might have been a better choice to use her work and credit her. But instead, it's like they they, they didn't even use her data, even though they were, they were doing the same stuff she was doing. And what followed, it almost became like a bad thing for these four guys to have won an award. Like the, the National Newspaper Award is a big award in Canadian media. But they got piled on for like, why are you stealing this award from Nora? Or they were even like kind of attacked on a personal, like all these four guys look like the same guy at different stages of their life. People kind of like making jokes about their appearance and stuff like that. And it almost became like the best day of their career became kind of like, like, ugh, I wouldn't want to be them right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a weird thing to see play out. And, you know, t- to their credit, like Ed Tubb, one of them engaged with Nora and, and recognized her, on, you know, publicly for, for her contribution to the story. But that was a weird thing that happened. Yeah, I think that, you know, what I have to say about this, it's it's very unfortunate to see these stories that do come out because, What I see in Canadian media sometimes is that it's very exclusive. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, very, uh, as we were saying, it's very white, you know, and it has it has to do with the fact that they really center folks who aren't associated with newspapers or or media outlets. And so in the case of Nora, who's a who's a really great writer and has done a lot of really good work, especially during the pandemic. People like her and just independent journalists, you know, or independent writers who are really digging into data, reporting, going out into communities, talking to people, getting different stories, putting that all on paper, putting in a lot of the work, but they're just not affiliated with a specific, let's say, a mainstream media outlet or tied to a news organization. A lot of the times their work is kind of a catalyst for someone else. For someone else's story. Yeah. And, and that story essentially, when, you know, let's say it gets placed for an award, it, it definitely, there is some injustice there. And these types of awards essentially discredit a lot of the work that these independent writers and journalists are doing because it's essentially saying that they're not good enough to be recognized. And then it also, then we start to get into the question of who, who who's on the committee? You know, what qualifies them to say, what is exceptional and what isn't, and what qualifies them to essentially kind of place someone else on a pedestal and to kind of create exclusionary requirements for someone to essentially not be able to apply or to be able to be considered for an award. Uh, Especially in, in 2021, we have so many amazing journalists who are doing work on their own and have even created their own independent media outlets. I think what we're seeing, whether it's the Golden Globes or the National Newspaper Awards, is like the awards sort of function more as a way of just sort of like buttressing who's elite and where the power lies than it is about merit, you know. And so Mm -hmm. here's another thing that happened from the National Newspaper Awards. Ryan McMahon tweeted, congratulations to Jaron Kerr and Canada Land with reference to a National Newspaper Award for We Charity coverage. That was a really mm-hmm. strange uh, tweet to a lot of people because Canada Land did not win a National Newspaper Award <laughs> for our coverage of We Charity. The Globe and Mail did. Um, now, I-, I-, I took this as good news because Jaron Kerr mm-hmm. is now at the Globe and Mail, and Jaron Kerr deserves a National Newspaper Award for his We Charity coverage. Yeah. But it was pretty funny um, 
to see the Globe and Mail when a, a, like the Globe and Mail has been partnered with We Charity for many many years and and was a, a very active player in establishing the power of We Charity mm-hmm. and Canadian Press has been nominated for an award for their We Charity coverage. Um, the former executive of the Canadian Press was on the board at We Charity when the scandal you know broke out. So it's really funny to see these organizations getting lauded. Now, I can't complain that that award should have been a Canada Land Award because, again, we don't qualify to even submit for the National Newspaper Awards. And I can't complain in a sour grapes way because we actually have been nominated for a bunch of awards for our weed charity coverage. And, you know, it's nice to win awards. I hope we win. But it's if you look at the different levels of prestige of the different awards, it kind of goes up to National Newspaper Awards and then the Missioner. They're telling us where we fit. Like Nora – is is mm-hmm. has been ostracized, has been you know, shut out yeah. um, since the Humboldt Broncos tweet, and so she like there's nowhere that, that that a person doing that kind of citizen journalism that she did can even apply, mm-hmm. though she deserves like a fucking Order of Canada for what she did. We're sort of like kind of like getting out of like brand ech. So Canada Land can kind of like get nominated for some awards, but not others, and it's it's just this hierarchy. And it's going to become increasingly ridiculous because more and more of the big news stories are going to come out of outlets like Canada Land or they're going to come out of individuals like Nora, like yourself doing research. Like, like, you know, and then mainstream news organizations are going to say, oh, that was a good looking story that Nora's working on. Let's do our version of it. And then they're going to like. You know, it gets to a point where it's like, don't you have any shame? Like mm-hmm. Canada Land sometimes picks up other people's stories. I wouldn't submit our treatment of somebody else's story for an award because I don't want to win that award that somebody else actually it's their story. Like we're going to get into a situation where it's actually going to become embarrassing to win an award. It's interesting to see how, again, what you were saying, you know, prestige and elitism. And I think, again, with Canadian media, there have been articles written about this and I've seen numerous journalists even post about this. And just, you know, independent journalists themselves who had previously been attached to a news outlet have essentially um, said that a lot of these awards are based on prestige or they're based on the or a connection. You know, I think we we have to we have to kind of be able to say that there is cases of, you know, someone getting to where they are because of a family connection. Now, I'm not trying to discredit any kind of journalist, of course, you know, merit is merit. But I think, I can't remember where I read this, but there have been claims or questions to kind of those family connections leading to someone winning an award based on that elitism. Or maybe because, you know, the story that they did was great, but because they have a larger platform or a larger recognition and it was based off a story some independent journalist or a different kind of person had written or researched, but that person, you know, didn't have the same platform or didn't have the same connections that that person had won. So there's kind of these little messy instances that also happen when I think of these awards. And I think there's something else that we also should look at is that when it comes to diversity in these awards and when it comes to kind of lack of diversity, we see a lot of people who are essentially have, let, let's say with Nora, with Nora, you know, you, as you said, she's been ostracized. And in the media, when you're ostracized, it's really hard to come back from. And so a lot of the times, other journalists who are people of color, who are Black and Indigenous people, I even want to say Arab journalists, which are, by the way, are very, very rare in Canadian media. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, even Arab journalists themselves don't really say they're Arab or, you know, they get too scared to kind of get caught up in talking about their ethnicity 
and even Palestinian journalists. I can only think of one Palestinian journalist in Canada who works at CBC, Nahla Ayad, I believe, and she's great. But so we get into the diversity issue and where the awards aren't actually being... I don't want to, you know, say like we should be giving these awards solely because of a person's skin color. But it's it's known that a lot of these people are essentially looked over because another person who works at CBC is white, you know, or is a white man. And then we also get into the intersectionalities of gender. You know, maybe less women are winning, more white men are winning. But if it's a white woman, then we kind of get into also the race claim. So I think it's also important to know it's just Canadian media is so white, just as, you know, the Golden Globes were. When I kind of think of this story and think of Nora, it's really painful to see and and to watch because just, you know, being vocal about something and actually talking about an issue that people don't want to talk about really gets you placed on a blacklist and for doing really great work, work that actually helps people and helps communities and helps readers and helps the country even. It's very unfortunate to see kind of that level of ostracization and that level of being quite literally canceled. Well, I, I agree with you. It's, the Nora situation is very different than ours because like I can take yeah. solace. I can feel, you know, ah, that, you know, about situation mm-hmm. or, or have a, have a, have a petty moment. But ultimately the award for the work we do is that we get to do it. Yeah. And so when you see somebody like Nora doing it for free on a voluntary basis, like you do want to see that recognized. You do want to see her awarded for that. Like that's a person mm-hmm. who actually, it would matter if we ever break off and, and, and start some Canada land awards to have like a 108th award ceremony, uh, I'll, I'll remember some sort of citation of merit. Dahlia, thank you once again for joining me this week. Thank you so much. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand, and we are on the internet at CanadaLand.com, where our new season of Commons has a great new show about real estate, about Africville, actually. Dahlia, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter, actually, at Dahlia underscore Masri, M-A-S-R-I. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb, with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Theme music is by So Cold. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you want to support us, it's a great time to do so. Please do. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this you can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. 
but not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.